Uh, you can have your Bibles handy. We're not in Genesis this morning. Uh, I felt led by the Lord to spend a little bit of, of extra time focusing on particularly this holiday of Thanksgiving, whereas normally I'd preach a message next week, uh, if, if, uh, if at all. Um, this year, I'm going to be spending three sermons thinking through the concept of Thanksgiving, this morning, next Sunday morning, and next Sunday evening as well. Uh, Thanksgiving, the season into which we are entering here, it's a season which has effectively no importance or presence in our culture any longer, but which indeed must be considered to be one of the most important church holidays in the Western world. And that because the concept which is at the very forefront of Thanksgiving's purpose is one of the most important and fundamental concepts of the Christian life. And I think this year it's worth our time to spend a little extra time thinking on the concept of thanksgiving. Not the holiday, the concept of being thankful. And today I'm going to seek to add some context, some clarity, biblically, to why thanksgiving is so important. Next week we'll ask why or what Thanksgiving looks like. But this week, why is Thanksgiving so important? And the way we're going to approach that is by considering what the lack of Thanksgiving does to people and indeed what the lack of Thanksgiving signifies in people. So we live in dark times. We live in times of sadness. We live in times of anger. Times well-expressed in the Psalms and the Proverbs, Proverbs 29.2 saying, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice, but when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. We live in those times. And this mourning is for any number of reasons, not the least of which is that when the wicked bear rule, it fosters more wickedness in society. So that we read in Psalm 12, verse 8, The wicked walk on every side, when the vilest men are exalted. Our country has for many years now exalted the vilest of men. And so the wicked walk on This makes the people to mourn. The wicked walk on every side because the vilest men are indeed the heroes and the martyrs of our society. Because the wicked bear rule. People mourn. Now what does this have to do with Thanksgiving? Well, it actually has quite a bit to do with Thanksgiving. So let's talk about it. We are in what the Bible calls the last days. This is to be distinguished from what we would consider the end times, which we would understand to be the final seven years prior to the coming of Jesus Christ. But rather, the last days signifies that we live in the final age or the final period of time prior to those end times, which we know will be the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, as John is writing to the church, he says this, Little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 tell us this as well. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. So the last days designation, 
The last day's designation in the Bible is not a delineation of time as much as it is a delineation of sequence. We do not know how long the last days will be. To this point in history, the last days have been about 2,000 years of Earth's history. We know that the apostles were convinced that the last days would mean that history would end while they were still alive. And indeed, nearly every generation of the church since the apostles has been convinced of the same. And this is not only natural, but as we look into the scriptures, we would believe that this is in fact designed, that this is what God intends. God intended in the manner in which Jesus taught his disciples to have their loins girt, their candles lit. God intended every generation to be the, a generation that anticipates the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We call this the imminent return of Christ. In fact, we even considered this last time we were together. The fact that the apostles were anticipating that the Lord would be coming very, very soon. So in 2 Peter chapter 3, if you recall, Peter writing, and he says this, beginning in verse 3, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts. I skipped to verse 8. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. So Peter speaks of the character of these last days. He says, scoffers, lusty men in these last times. Those verses I skipped talked about these men scoffing and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the beginning, God has promised these things, but they have not come. And then in verse 8, it says that we are not ignorant of the fact that soon to God is different than soon to us. That because God is not bound by time, soon to God does not speak about a nearness of the linear elements of time, but rather a nearness of sequence. So as we look into the Bible, we divide the Bible in various ways. And different, different uh, uh, people, different theology systems divide the Bible in different ways. And we would generally fall into a camp at Legacy Baptist Church that would be called dispensationalism. And as generally falling into this camp, what we have identified in the Word of God is that there are different ages, that there are different times and seasons in the Bible and in history that God has chosen in these different ages while He is always the same God and He has always uh, governed men in, in the same way as it relates to eternal salvation, salvation by grace through faith. It has always been that way. Yet God has chosen in different times and in different seasons to dispose Himself to mankind in different ways. And as we see what God has done from generation to generation, what we find is that um, the prophets have identified God's workings in various times. God has revealed the way he's working in various times and that God has revealed specifically to the apostles that this time in which we live, what we would generally call the church age, the time where God is reaching out to the whole world through the church, not through Israel, to the Gentile and the Jew alike, that this age is the final age prior to Jesus's second coming and prior to all of the promises that God has made of his kingdom coming to pass. Thus, we live in the last times. And when God says that he is coming soon, when, God, when Jesus says, surely I come 
quickly. The idea there is not that he is going to come quickly in the manner of the way we reckon time, but rather that if you look at the epochs of history, if you look at the times and the seasons, if you look at what must come to pass before Jesus' sure return, there is nothing left. We are in the last generation. Therefore, the next thing on the divine timetable is the second coming of Jesus Christ. To that end, as God looks at the timeline of history, he sees event, 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 return. We are in the final event. We do not know how long that event will be. We do not know how long this age will persist. But we know that this is the final age before Christ's certain return. Now, I give all of this to you to frame your minds around the idea of the last days. We have been in the last days now for 2,000 years. And the last days, the Bible says, will be characterized by progressive wickedness. And there are two passages of Scripture I want to take you to to think through this as we connect to this idea of why Thanksgiving? Why does it matter? Why is it so important? And they're both in Timothy, one in 1 Timothy, one in 2. I take you to 1 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul says this. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times, that's our designation for last days here, in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created, to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Now we're actually going to spend some more time on this in a couple of weeks in Genesis. Because what we'll find as we step into Genesis chapter 9, not next week, but the week after, is that in Genesis chapter 9, God gives unto Noah and unto mankind uh, this unique and new um, opportunity, privilege, uh, which is to eat meat. And so we'll come back to this passage as we think through that concept and we relate it to where we find ourselves in society today. So we'll get there. But for today, my objective is for you to see the character of these last days. Uh, called here the latter times. The character of these last days is the character of a time people will be quick to fall into false teaching and quick to fall into error. A time when people's consciences will be dulled to truth. And so they are not sensitive either to their own wickedness or to society's wickedness. A time when people will desire to fundamentally reject the design of God. They will fundamentally reject God's design in marriage. They will fundamentally reject God's design in sustenance. And you notice here already a direct link to our theme this morning. That as they reject these things which God has given to society for its flourishing, marriage, eating of meat, they are rejecting that which God has has created to be received with thanksgiving. That when humanity recognizes that these things are a gift from God and they are thankful to God for the things which they have been given, they receive them gladly as a gift. So when they fail to receive them, what are they doing? They are failing for a reason. They, 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 they refuse them for a reason. They no longer see them as a gift of God because they are no longer a thankful people. 
And this is not just a coincidence in the scriptures. As the conscience of humanity progresses into callousness and deeper depravity as these last days continue, there's a refusal to receive with thanksgiving those things which God has specifically designed and given to mankind. Now I take you to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Here we are in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul writing to Timothy, warning him of these things. The next time Paul writes to Timothy, he feels like he has a few more warnings to give him. 2 Timothy chapter 3. The Bible says, This know also, that in the last days, there's our time again, perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. That, I skipped there from verse 7 to verse 13 uh, for that last verse. So Paul is again writing to Timothy of these last days. And here he describes them as perilous times. We might connect this to what we have been learning about in, as it relates to the end times and the days of Noah. As in the days of Noah, men were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, although we might see a little bit less of that if uh, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4 is, is accurate. But in this we see the idea of people going on doing their things and yet there was violence continually. Men did that which was right in their own eyes. These sorts of things. We see that same sort of demonstration here of perilous times, of dangerous times, of wicked times. A description of the character of those times. And again, I remind you that though you and I see this character very clearly in our day, and though verse 13 says very clearly that evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, so we are expecting that as the last days continue, things will continually get progressively worse on, as a rule. It's kind of a two steps forward, one steps back situation as we look at history, right? And what I mean by that is twofold. First, know that in, not just in 2022 AD, but in 700 A.D. and 1500 A.D., there was plenty of evil then too. Know this also. We are not in, by far, the most debauched or wicked time in, in, in history. No, by far, we are not in the most corrupt time in history. We have the propensity, the possibility of getting to that time. But we are most certainly not there yet. If you do any research into... Uh, um, ancient Greek society. If you think about those days of uh, Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, if you think about the morality of the Greek empire in their heyday, you find that the kind of debauchery they were involved in uh, makes our, uh, our societies aspiring to it. But we have reached nothing like what those societies reached in, 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 in debauchery. And so, remember that as well. It's the same as we think of persecution. Of course, in the United States of America, persecution has never been something that we have experienced much of in the church. Uh, certainly nothing like what they're experiencing in Syria, the Syrian Christians, 
certainly nothing like they're experiencing uh, in Iran or in Iraq. Certainly nothing like they're experiencing in China. And yet even among those who are being persecuted in those nations, it's nothing like we might think of in the days of the early church. Nothing like we would think of in the days of Nero. We are not yet at a place once again where emperors are arresting Christians, dipping them in oil and lighting them on fire to light their gardens. Or that people are taking Christians and throwing them into arenas and watching them get devoured by animals for sport. So remember that perilous times have been before. And we are certainly not in the most perilous days. But what we would expect is that in the ebb and flow of history, though there have been deeper valleys and there have been higher peaks, yet with those valleys and peaks of righteousness and of of wickedness, we are in a general downward spiral. We are actually still spinning down the drain. (laughs) There there is an inevitability to that. Scripture speak to it. However, that does not mean that there cannot be an awakening. There does not mean that there cannot be a, a revival. So, so keep those things in mind. So we do see this here at the end of verse 13. Paul warns that in the last days, as they progress, evil men and seducers will in fact be getting worse and worse. There will be more deceivers. There will be more people being deceived. And we might think that as we think on that progressive line, one may say, how is that possible? How is it possible that one generation of deceivers could be any much worse than another? And we may have thought that until about 20 years ago, but now that we have the internet, we see how that's possible, right? Deception has been able to take a exponential leap through the capacity that people have to disseminate their thoughts unfiltered on the internet. Whereas before, a guy who wanted to deceive the masses would eventually run into somebody who would shut him down. There's no capacity to do that now with the internet being as it is. And I'm not saying that that means that the internet needs to be censored. I'm simply saying that we are in unprecedented times for information. As Daniel says, in the last days, men shall run to and fro across the earth and knowledge shall increase. And we are certainly living in those days, days that never could have been anticipated. The ability to disseminate knowledge, which means, of course, seducers and deceivers have a platform that maybe before society and even the church would never have given people before. It used to be that a man would roll into town uh, on his ox cart and he'd start preaching some sort of heresy. And the pastors of that town would come up and would say, you're not welcome here, go away. Now you can sit in the privacy of your own home and you can turn on that heresy anytime you want and I won't even know that it's happening. I I have no capacity to protect you from those things the way pastors used to be able to protect their flocks from such things. To that end, seducers and deceivers shall wax worse and worse. The the, uh, democratization of information has made it to where there are very few gatekeepers. And while there are certain benefits to that, there are certainly many detriments as well. So we can expect that through history, though it will ebb and flow as there are spiritual awakenings, spiritual revivals, and other things, the character of society is a downward spiral. The second thing I want to highlight in this passage was that within this list of very negative attributes, right? It was a pretty negative list that we read here that would characterize the last days, placed within this list of things which designate the wickedness of the last days, we find this word unthankful. Right after disobedient to parents. And perhaps we are not surprised. Because what is Thanksgiving? What is Thanksgiving but the setting aside of my lusts and my covetousness and my wants 
to rest in the contentment of who I am and what I've been given. What is thanksgiving but the acknowledgement that I am not entitled to what I have? I'm not entitled to my possessions. I'm not entitled to my relationships. I'm not entitled even to my very life, but that they are rather a gift from a benevolent God. The outworkings of blessing. And what it requires to be thankful then, we'll consider this more next Sunday morning, what it requires to be thankful is humility. A determination to see beyond myself. So if the character of the last days is defined by men who will be lovers of their own selves, is it any wonder that the character of the last days is a character of unthankfulness? Cultures that refuse to see beyond themselves. Cultures that are determined to see life only through the lens of how it affects them. If they are covetous, if they are proud, if they are boasters, if they are rebellious then you can mark it down, they will be unthankful. A society in which each individual thinks only of himself, a society which believes their happiness, their thoughts, their decisions, their feelings, their priorities must dictate the actions of others toward them is a society which will not be thankful. And much to the contrary, a self-centered society, a self-centered person We'll become a proud society. We'll become an angry society. We'll become a discontent society. A self-centered person will be a proud person. Will be an angry person. Will be a discontent person. A person who is fundamentally resentful of others, of anyone who does not share in their misery. In Romans chapter 1, Paul gives one of the most clear descriptions of the heart of a man who has rejected humility before God. In it, we read this, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man." and to birds, and to four-footed beasts, and creeping things. As Paul expresses why it is that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, why it is that, that, that man can see the judgment of God even just in the created world, he describes the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. And he says that these are men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. That doesn't mean they hold on to the truth there, but the Greek word that undergirds that word hold is not the word hold on to, but rather hold down. It's to suppress. It's to hinder. So these are ungodly and unrighteous men, not that they do not know the truth, but that they are suppressing the truth. Evil men and seducers waxing worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. He describes them as men who know full well of the authority and the power 
of God, through creation, through conscience, because Psalm 19 says the very heavens declare the glory of God. It does not just say that the heavens declare the presence of God. The heavens declare the reality of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. As Romans 1 puts it, even his eternal power and Godhead. It is not just that God exists, but it is that God is in authority. It is all manifest in the created order itself. And when their conscience informs them of God's authority and power, instead of humbling themselves before this authority, the Bible says, instead of reflecting upon God and His authority, they instead reject it. Instead of them saying, reflecting upon, with thanksgiving, the long-suffering, merciful power of God, He creates and sustains us, He has revealed himself to us. Instead, they reject this God, become vain in their imaginations, concocting all number of absurd and empty reasons why God must not exist or why God must not care or why God must not actually have authority. And as they enfold into the darkness of their own hearts, thus becoming idolaters, because everyone is going to worship something and they're going to worship something. And if it isn't God, it's going to be something else. What it will end up being is themselves. And as they enfold into worshiping themselves, there is no one to be thankful to anymore because they are the end of their own existence. Therefore, they aren't thankful. They don't care about anyone else or anything else. It is all about them. There's no one to thank because it's all about them. This is self-righteousness. This is self-idolatry. And as we've already read in First and Second Timothy, the elevation of themselves as the God of their own existence, living by their own rules, living according to nothing but their own feelings, demanding that everyone else accommodate their own self-worship, will bring them to this place of wickedness. And this is the answer to the question with which we began this morning. Why is Thanksgiving so important? Why is it worth our time to spend time over the next week, week and a half, focusing on Thanksgiving. Not the holiday, the principle. Not eating a bunch, but how the food got on your table to begin with. Not having to meet with all of those family members that you may or may not like, but rather the concept of family, marriage, God's design. Why is it worth focusing on those things? Because they pull us outside of ourselves. Because self is the great enemy of God. Self is the thing that keeps us away from Him. Self is the thing that keeps us away from His Word. Self is the thing that convinces us we don't need to pray. Self is the thing that keeps us holding on to what we have rather than giving of it freely. Self is the thing that convinces us that we don't need to invest in the problems of others. We don't need to invest in the needs of others. We'll just take care of ourselves. And Thanksgiving says, it's not about you. Thanksgiving says, not have you gotten, but what you have received. Thanksgiving says, there's more than just you out there. And that that really matters. A thankful person is a person that must see outside of himself, who must recognize someone greater than he, 
who must understand that he is not the product simply of his own capacities, of his own genius. But there's more to this answer of why Thanksgiving is so important. Thanksgiving is very important because it draws us outside of ourselves. But Thanksgiving is important for another reason as well. Romans chapter 1, here, I finished in verse 23. I want to keep going in verse 24 through 32. We'll finish the chapter. And as Romans continues, we have insight into why we ought to, not just just why Thanksgiving is right and good, but why we ought to prioritize it in our lives. Because the lack of thanksgiving actually has a natural outcome of its own. And we see that outcome as we continue in Romans chapter 1. Continuing in verse 24. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. When at once a man places himself into the center of his own existence, when when at once man elevates himself to his own Godhead, when he himself is his own God, when he is the end-all, be-all of his own thinking and intentions and desires, he begins an inevitable downward spiral into what the Bible calls a reprobate mind. It's most clearly defined by sexual perversion, but as I read this list, you notice a great deal of that is not just sexual perversion. As a matter of fact, for the second time within our unthankful passages, within our last days, man is being corrupted passages, you find terrible things such as murder and hatred and, and, and a callousness of heart. But what else, do you, what else do you find with them? You find something as uh, common as, in both passages, disobedient to parents. Rebellion is really the idea there, right? A rebellious heart, a heart that is drifted away from the God-given authorities in one's life. And so we see this list, anger and deceit and manipulation and hatred and pride and rebellion and lies. These are the product of a person or a society which has cast off the knowledge of God. These are the results in people who have become the center of their own universe. You elevate yourself to be God, this is what you can expect to happen. Because you're a very bad God. You are very bad at running your own life. You can't do it. This is, in fact, why we need God. Because man left his own devices, 
Whenever you look in the scriptures and you find that phrase, man did that which was right in his own eyes. Do you know what you're going to find in that passage? You're going to find an awful lot of very bad things. You're going to find that things don't work out. You're going to find a lot of people dying. You're going to find a lot of babies being killed. You're going to find a lot of elderly people being killed, the innocent, the weak in society being killed. You're going to find a lot of uh, um, uh, leaders being killed, a lot of turnover. You're going to find a lot of wars. You're going to find a lot of very hurt people. You're going to find a lot of damaged people. Because that's what happens when people do that which is right in their own eyes. The results of people who are the center of their own universe, who are lovers of their own selves, who shape their gods in their own image, and as a matter of fact, have lifted up their own image to be their god. And this is why Thanksgiving is so important, Christian. Thanksgiving stems the tide of self. Thanksgiving works in the heart of those who practice it, the virtue of humility. James chapter 4, verse 6 tells us, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Now we know that the holiday of Thanksgiving is not the great antidote. Indeed, there are many an unbeliever, even the concept of Thanksgiving is not the great antidote. There's many an unbeliever who has the capacity to see beyond his own nose. There's many an unbeliever who is a very thankful person. We, as Christians, do not have the corner on the market of Thanksgiving, but, but we do have the corner on consistency in that market. And what I mean by that is this. When the unbeliever expresses true Thanksgiving, which many an unbeliever does, they do so by borrowing the principles of humility and gratitude that are rooted in the Word of God. And to some degree, they do so in fundamental contradiction to their own worldview because if they turned the truth of God into a lie, if they're worshiping the creature rather than the creator, then they're in thanksgiving to something, but not to the actual one who has given them their blessings. I've... Uh, Spent 10 years now as a chaplain at the jail, and one of the things that I've been fascinated with, um, you know, many people, most of the people in the jail are, are um, abusers of various substances, either alcohol or, or, or drugs, uh, legal or otherwise, and, and many of them will go to Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, and of course they have the 12 steps and whatever else, and within that system they talk about a higher power. And, and, and having a higher power and, and uh, making sure that you're accountable to some higher power. And one of the things that I found over the years is that uh, when you talk to someone about their higher power, uh, you'll have two groups of people. You'll have the people that will have some higher power other than Jesus Christ. And they will use that higher power as the thing unto which they're accountable. And that might be uh, the, the, the more general idea of God. Or that might be uh, one of the other gods in the pantheon of, of religious systems, whether that be Allah or Buddha or Dalai Lama or whatever it might be, uh, ancestor worship, whatever, whatever it might be. Uh, or they might even just choose something random. I mean, for all that, it could be a Chia pet, right? Whatever it is, though, they, they want this higher power. But the point of the higher power is that they have something unto which they're accountable. 
Now, as I explain this to people who are within that system, I say it is very important to acknowledge that there is a higher power. But if your higher power is not actually a higher power, then all you are doing is you are manipulating your flesh into some sort. You're attempting to manipulate your flesh into a false system of accountability by which to try to trick yourself into stopping the negative things that you're doing. They are synthesizing a false biblical system. They are synthesizing the principles, pseudo-principles of the word of God as a means by which to attempt to manipulate themselves into some form of behavior. That's very different than actually following Jesus Christ though, isn't it? Because when I follow Jesus Christ, I don't just have the authority, but I have the empowerment. And so I tell them this in the jail. Where I'm getting to with this for us, however, is this. That the unbeliever, the one who has rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior, it does not mean that they cannot be thankful anymore than the drug addict cannot choose a Chia pet as his higher power and maybe find in that some satisfaction. However, it's false. It's fake. It is conjured up in his mind as a means by which to manipulate his direction, his emotions. But we don't need to synthesize these things. We have the real thing. We have the true reason to be thankful. So if anyone in this society ought to love Thanksgiving, ought to thrive in and flourish in the concept of Thanksgiving, it should be God's people. Why? Because we, among the people on this earth, have a true understanding of who it is unto whom we are actually thankful. Christian, you and I are not among those who are synthesizing some false idea of thanksgiving to find peace in our heart. We who are in Christ, for we who are in Christ, thanksgiving is not only good, it is the most spiritually natural impulse we can have. You know that your life is only borrowed for a time from the God of all flesh. You know that. You know that God is he who makes the sun to rise in the morning and set at night. You know that. You know that when you woke up in the morning, it was not an accident that the sun was continuing to shine. You know that. You know that it's not an accident that your heart is still beating. You know that. You know that you are the chief of sinners. You know that you're undeserving of any passing consideration by a holy God. You know the depths of the wicked inclinations of your own heart. You can contemplate what life would be like without the light of Christ having shined into your heart. You know what it took for God to redeem you from your sins. You know what it means that Jesus gave his life for you. You know the sorrow and the agony that Jesus went through on that cross. You know that all that you have is not but what you have received. You know that God is both provider and sustainer. And so there ought to be no more natural disposition in your life, in the life of a properly oriented Christian, than the disposition unto thankfulness. Now, our society 
of course, we're in an unbelieving society. Thanksgiving, of course, originated out of a group of believers who uh, put into our culture and into our traditions this concept of Thanksgiving. And for many generations, our society was very happy to do so. As our society has enfolded more into itself, we see less and less of an inclination toward this thing, where by today, Thanksgiving has been completely not just ignored, but it has been completely usurped. Thanksgiving Day is a day of selfishness and gluttony, leading to the highest day of covetousness on our calendar, Black Friday. And so Satan has done a really good job in our society of taking what was a consecrated holiday unto thankfulness and selflessness and turning it into the absolute most selfish day of the year. But God forbid that it should be so among God's people. I'm not saying you can't go out and shop on Friday. That's not what I'm preaching this morning. But you better check your heart before you do. This time every year serves to reorient the believing mind, the believing heart, to that which we are called to live under the entire year around. For the believer, Thanksgiving is not intended to be a day. It's intended to be a disposition. The framework of living. And yet it is good. It is right that we would take a day from our year to focus on this blessed virtue and rebuild in us what may have been lost throughout the year as it relates to thankfulness. Maybe especially after this week, especially after the things that have happened in our society and with the election and whatnot, you're not feeling very thankful. And there's reasons to be concerned. There's reasons to be concerned about our society. There's reasons to be frustrated. And all of that is there. But aside from what is happening in those halls of government, aside from what is happening among the, 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 the misguided leaders that we have, Regardless of that, is there not a great deal to be thankful for? We're going to talk about that next week. And as we think about that, as we orient our minds to that, though, well, we sang about it this morning, right? This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong be oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. That though things might be bad, we still woke up this morning. The sun was still shining. Your heart was still beating. There are people to tell. There are people to serve. There's provision to be had. There's children to raise. There's a generation to reach. There's things to be done. And God has equipped you to do it. And so my question to you this morning. Are you a thankful person? And if you are not... Why not? Have you been drawn away by the lies of the world in these last days? The last days are here, and we, we've been in them, but we're, we're, they're getting worse and worse. We're seeing that. Things are, things are bad. They, we hope they get better. They may, they may not, but things are bad. But have you been drawn away? Not necessarily by, oh, we lost, we, we, the... Righteousness did not prevail in this election. Not necessarily by op, the economy is bad, but, but what about this one? What about, what about all of the cultural teaching on self? You say, I haven't been drawn away by the political lies, Pastor. Okay, good. I haven't been drawn away by, 
by, by all, of the, all of the misinformation and the fake news. Okay, fine. But what about all of society's teaching about self? Have you been drawn away by a love of self? Have you been drawn away by that spirit of covetousness? Have you been drawn away by this materialism? Have you been drawn away by those things? Have you been pulled into the flow of the cultural path of being a lover of your own self, of elevating yourself above others and above God? Have you become so distracted with your ideas, with your priorities, with your needs, with your desires, with your fears, with your expectations that you have forgotten from whence all things come? Have you become proud living in the context of what you don't have or what you aren't rather than in the context of what you do have and what you are? Would you allow this Thanksgiving season to become a corrective influence in your life? Drawing you back to that first love. Calling you to return to your creator and give him the glory that is due unto his name. And as we think on these things, I leave you with one more thought. Psalm 33 verse 1 says this. Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, for praise is comely for the upright. Now, we're going to talk next week on what Thanksgiving looks like, and you're going to see a lot more about rejoicing. We'll, we'll, we'll get there. But I want to focus in on this last little bit here. Praise is comely for the upright. It is a comely thing, a good thing, an appropriate thing that we would give credit to whom credit is due. It is a comely thing, a right thing, a good thing that we would spend some time looking outside of ourselves. And as you gear up for this Thanksgiving season, as you think through what it's going to look like, as you contemplate uh, how you're feeling and, and, and everything that has been going on, and you contemplate what society is, is directing people's minds and hearts toward in this holiday season, as we would call it, allow Thanksgiving to be what it's supposed to be. Allow it to be a time where you contemplate what you have been blessed with. You take your mind off of you and you put it on others. But all, all the more so, you put it on the one from whom all things have come. And in doing so, not only as a thankful people is it right and it's good, not only is it, is it appropriate for those who are followers of the true and living God, but it also stems the tide of that darkness in our hearts. It also stems the tide of the threat of these last days where men are drawn into the love of self. You want to avoid being a casualty of the last days? Thanksgiving is a really good place to start. And so let's do that. Let's begin today and let's determine it throughout this next couple of weeks that we would be a people living in determined thanksgiving unto our Lord. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.